Hello and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxham, Project Support Officer at the Sainsbury Institute and researcher of Japanese war heritage. This week we are joined by David Slater, Professor of Anthropology at Sophia University in Tokyo, to discuss Article 9 and Youth Politics. Following Japan's defeat in the Asia-Pacific War and the dismantling of its empire, occupying US forces put a clause in their revised constitution that forbade Japan from engaging in war or having a standing army. This clause, Article 9, has been the subject of much public debate in recent years as government leaders, such as former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, have sought to revise it, inciting political action from youth activists seeking to keep Japan out of warfare. However, as discussed in an earlier episode of Failed Revolutions, political activism has a tainted reputation and a repressed history in Japan. David explains the fine line demonstration groups must walk to campaign for political change while avoiding appearing to be political. We hope you enjoy the show. Good morning, David. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much for having me. So first of all, we'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests have brought you there? So I am a cultural anthropologist and an ethnographer and an oral narrative scholar. I started working in Japan and were looking at questions of education and youth culture. Particularly, I, I was doing my dissertation just as the bubble was bursting. And so the youth labor market was fragmenting. And the people at the bottom of the educational ladder who at one point were relatively certain about moving into stable, if not particularly uh, high paying jobs, could no longer expect that to happen. And so it was the kind of the age of Frita. Um, suddenly they were uh, working on short-term contract positions. Uh, and uh, th this really changed the, not only the composition of post-bubble Japan is what we call it now, but the people at the bottom probably had the, the most uh, jarringly different experience from anybody up and down the, the social class uh, ladder. I was working on that and questions of new forms of capitalism, new forms of labor, and how young people are adapting to that or not. And then my research trajectory really changed in 2011. On March 11th, with the, the triple disasters, the earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear meltdown, I started reevaluating a little bit about what teaching should be and what the obligation of the institution, both to its students, but also to society. And uh, we relocated most of my teaching and all of my research up to the affected areas up in Tohoku. So Miyagi and Fukushima and Iwate. Uh, we ended up doing uh, transitioning to a, a different kind of research that was based on volunteer support labor that we were providing. That was kind of part of the educational curriculum at the time, and also gathering the narratives of disaster and survival among the communities uh, up there um, who felt that their voices were not listened to by their own government, and the media had their own narratives 
that oftentimes the people up in Tohoku didn't really feel that their story fit into that NHK narrative of things. So our job for about five or six years there was to try to tell the story of the people up there. I, with my students and undergraduates and graduates, uh, working up in kind of a different sort of educational uh, and scholarly project. Part of that, while we're up there, of course, was the political engagement of uh, the people down here in Tokyo. How politics sometimes travels across distances is unpredictable. While we were seeing all kinds of, of large and, and important, I think, uh, demonstrations down in Tokyo, both by feminist groups and by environmental groups uh, initially, and by anti-fascist groups eventually, politics up in Tohoku was kind of a different thing. It's much harder to speak out in those kinds of close-knit rural communities, uh, even as they were scattered about in, in different relocation sites, mostly because of the, the radiation and the tsunami. But trying to figure out what counts as politics in small communities up in Tohoku was, was an important part of our, our project. So we eventually, in about 2015 or 16, we ran out of money. Uh, I no longer was able to secure enough money to bring our students and my research apparatus up to Tohoku. Um, Japan, in general, was wanting to put the whole Fukushima thing behind them. And what for my students, what was once a, an important national project of studying and supporting the people up in Tohoku kind of shifted a little bit. And they also started seeking to distance themselves from the difficult and unresolved problems up in Tohoku. The fact that the economy hadn't restarted, really. Uh, new businesses hadn't been relocating. People were still living in temporary housing. It became a difficult and, and darker project in a lot of ways. So we ended up, mostly because of our lack of funds, focusing on the activist movement down here. A lot of my students were quite active after being up in Tohoku as part of the movement. So in a lot of ways, it was kind of a natural transition, both uh, looking at the lives of nuclear and, and tsunami-affected populations and the political responses to those situations down in Tokyo. It's fascinating, especially in the um, recent anniversary of the disaster. So the central topic of today's episode is something which truly does set Japan apart from most nation states, which is Article 9. This clause in Japan's post-war constitution, drafted by the USA, required that the Japanese people forever renounce war as a sovereign right of the nation and the threat or use of force as a means of settling international disputes. As such, land, sea and air forces, as well as other war potential, will never be maintained. Could you briefly explain for us how Article 9 functions within popular imagination among the general public and activist movements, particularly in the 1990s onwards? Yeah, the reading of Article 9 shifts over time, and it shifts among generations in ways that we would expect. If we're talking about a, a popular rendering of it, Article 9, probably more than anything else, is something that represents Japan's commitment, not only to peace, not only to a renunciation of their own fascist past and militarism in their past, but also a positive commitment 
that is not equaled anywhere else in the world to establishing and participating in a peaceful society, a peaceful global society. And so for that older population, most of whom are dead, Article 9 represents something good that has come out of the tragedy of the Pacific War. For a, a younger uh, and younger, I mean, people who are like 60 and 70 years old, um, it's a little bit more complicated. They are more aware of the imposed nature of the Constitution, aware of some of the complexity of having a Constitution that was written under the context of occupation. And so their relationship to Article 9 doesn't disavow or, or ignore this uh, complex history, but it certainly takes it into consideration in a way that complicates their support for it. We see a bunch of those age people who focus on the imposed nature of it, that it's not Japan's constitution. There's another group of people who are against this, against Article 9. It, it shackles the ability of Japan to be full players within the global society, global economy, um, that until uh, Article 9 is renounced, is preferably abolished from the constitution, Japan will still be, in some sense, both under the thumb of, of America, but also not fully realized geopolitical players. So both of those two, two groups, I think, are in the minority, actually, even among this age of people. The majority, according to census data and uh, survey data, most people support it for its positive contribution, because it represents something that Japan not only is claiming for itself now in its embrace of pacifism, but also that because it's the only nation that is doing that, Japan becomes a model or can be a model for the rest of the nations in the world if they're also similarly committed to a peaceful world. So far, not a lot of countries have adopted this sort of approach, but nevertheless, very much ingrained in this particular population, the importance of uh, Article 9 as an ideological commitment. It's also a little bit more than that insofar as it functions domestically somewhat differently. Domestically, it functions as a check on more rightist, authoritarian, usually LDP-promoted efforts to try to not remilitarize Japan, but to turn Japan into a nation that is less free, that is more instrumentally oriented towards a pro-military government. So a lot of the population, even if they are LDP members, LDP supporters, still want to keep the Article 9 as a way to make sure even the LDP doesn't encroach upon the principles of freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, the determination by the population of its foreign policy and its domestic policy. So it is a complicated document among all kinds of different 
populations and uh, different generations. So in 2015, you co-authored an article on Students' Emergency Action for Liberal Democracy entitled SEALDS, Research Notes on Contemporary Youth Politics in Japan, which presents the group as a body of regular college students who contrast themselves against the domineering right-wing politics of the ruling Liberal Democratic Party, or LDP, and radical left-wing politics associated with the Anpo riots and the Japanese Red Army. Although now disbanded, what were the politics of SEALDS and what was their stance on Article 9? We need to look at SEALDS as one of the representatives, maybe the most popular and most successful representative that came out of the, the post-Fukushima period. But they're actually a culmination of a set of political shifts, especially around the youth, that has really been going on since the bubble bursting, I think. One of the things that the young people in Japan don't really know about because it's not part of their education, uh, it's not part of the, the regular curriculum, is the rich history of political activism and governmental opposition that goes all the way back to Edo. In particular, the post-war period, they don't know what happened during this Ampo period. If you look at, for example, most American curriculum, everybody will know who Martin Luther King is, that something about him. And in fact, most Japanese have studied something about Martin Luther King as well. And the Japanese youth won't have any correlate, any counterpart within their own history, either a personality or a set of reforms or set of issues that they're um, uh, aware of uh, that comes from the post-war period. And as a result, the period of Ampo really only exists in kind of grainy black and white images of people and young people like themselves committing dark and dangerous sorts of movements that are selfish, that are antisocial, that are a danger to themselves and to the society that they come from. And this is how the post-war activist politics exists for most young people and actually for a lot of even older people. So while other countries are drawing upon their own activist pasts as a resource to configure where they're from and to chart a course where they're going, uh, there's this big black hole that's full of just scariness for a lot of the, the youth activists in Japan. So the older activists, most prominently the, the environmental activists, are usually quite old. Their activism is oftentimes something you do after you retire. And then there's a bunch of older people protesting outside of this or that location. For the younger people, I think at every kind of activist movement since probably the 80s, I guess, the first thing that they had to do is distance themselves from this image of Ampo. The first thing that they had to do is say, that's not us. We are also youth activists. We are also calling for change in our society. But that image that you and we have Neither one of us don't really understand it very well, but we know it's bad and we know it's not us. And so one of the things that SEALS was able to do is more successfully 
distance themselves by all of the kind of symbolism that goes into any social movement and certainly any youth movement. A lot of the other kinds of groups prior to there didn't have kind of the mastery of social media that SEALs did. They didn't have the image of a clean-cut college students who look like they are respectable and respecting the society. Uh, didn't look like they were a group of people who uh, you could actually talk to. And SEALs was able to create an image for itself that was very much approachable and very much looking style-wise like most college students in Japan today. So they succeeded where a lot of other movements prior to them failed. They also got a lot of backlash from older activists, 30s and 40s, 50s, those aged activists looked at these young people in their designer gear and their fancy haircuts and, and all this kind of stuff. And they said, these people don't look like activists. They're not doing serious politics. We can't take them seriously. And as a result, even the recent past, the recent history of activism, there was a disconnect between SEALs and, and even that, that recent group of activists, even though that group of activists also when they were when they were most active, they were trying to distance themselves from uh, the AMPO darkness as well. So this repackaging of themselves as uh, media savvy, as clean cut and unthreatening, the thing that enabled them to appeal to so many different kinds of people was also the thing that uh, made their relationships to other activist groups kind of tenuous at times. It was hard for both groups to seek and perform a uh, common cause. I see. To deviate slightly from the topic, could you explain for us perhaps why there is this lack of historical knowledge of activism in Japan's modern history? The lack of historical awareness of recent history among many college students at any time really stems from the fact that the education, the, the shakaika, the social studies education, really doesn't move even into the Pacific War oftentimes. They kind of oftentimes stop their curriculum at the beginning of the conflicts. And so there's not a systematic rendering of either the war or its aftermath, the occupation, and uh, let alone anything that came after that. Literally, they haven't taken the kinds of classes, they haven't been exposed to those kinds of things that uh, we see in many other societies. That's in high school. In college, I'm afraid that we really do almost no better. There's a, a large amount of self-censorship in university education. And not many professors want to teach explicitly about the politics and the sets of conflicts that are afflicting Japan in the post-war period and even today. Many professors, and I'm also including myself within the group that thinks twice before you make any explicit political statement or even include explicit politics in your curriculum. People anticipate charges of being biased or unbalanced or ideological. Uh, and those are quite potent charges. For a professor to be accused of those things is a very serious charge. 
And it's something that, as a result, the university hasn't done a much better job than the high school in addressing many of these issues, I'm afraid. Well, I hope this episode doesn't get you in too much hot water. Um, well, uh, it, it's, it's actually one of the advantages of being old uh, and senior. It's more trouble to fire me than it is to keep me on. So um, I think I'm okay. Excellent. <laughs> uh, so the LDP has long dominated Japanese politics, having remained in power for almost the entire post-war period since they were first elected in 1955. While international politics, such as American interests in Japan's post-war development, have had an enduring impact on this, what is the core demographic of LDP voters, and where do younger generations fit into this? So the, the LDP, very briefly, it did fall out of power, but traditionally we think of the LDP as being more based in rural areas than urban areas. But the way the distribution of representation goes, that alone is enough to keep their hold on politics. But the truth is that there's also a huge amount of support for LDP party, if not for those issues. A lot of people will identify things like they might be against the effort to overturn Article 9, for example, and still be voting for the LDP representative that they're used to voting for even though that same representative is in favor of overturning the Article 9, for example. So it's a strange kind of schizophrenic way of, of voting. You oftentimes support, even though the people who you're supporting don't always support the issues that you support. So young people oftentimes, I mean, I, I think in most places, people think of younger people as politically apathetic. And I think, uh, nevertheless, in Japanese universities, you would think that they were even more politically dead than their European or American counterparts. The focus for almost all Japanese college students are really getting a job, uh, taking a break from a very grueling high school selection process. You rest for a couple of years, and then the last two years are basically devoted to trying to secure a job, even as the number of jobs um, are, are dwindling. Still, this is the obsession of most Japanese college students. So they don't even get to the point of, do I support the LDP or do I not support the LDP? It's more that politics is so distant. I think for most uh, young people, politics is a soiled pursuit. Oftentimes they look at politicians, party politicians, as venal people with relatively no, low morality and who are in it to serve themselves. And young people, to the extent that they even are familiar with the policies and practices of the different political parties, are feel very alienated from any of the parties. And there isn't, for example, a Green Party, or there isn't a Bernie Sanders sort of a figure that mobilizes young people around particular issues. So many of the students, even when, for example, in SEALs, even when they were protesting in front of hundreds and thousands of people uh, in front of the, the prime minister's residence. The biggest demonstration since AMPO, the SEALs was organizing those things. We might ask them, because 
one of the things we did is, is systematically interview each of the members of SEALs uh, a couple of times, oftentimes, to, to see what they're doing and how they imagine their own political practice. And we would ask them, so are you, are you an activist? Right? Uh, and you might use the word katsudoka or undoka. And they go, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm not an activist. Um, I, I'm, 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 just, I'm just regular for the futsna. And then they might be a futsna gakse uh, or a, or a uh, futsna mama, um, right? If 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 we're talking about uh, some of the the other groups that align themselves with seals, the the image of politics is so poisoned in Japan that in order to avoid the suspicion of self interest and venality, that you have to disavow politics in order to become politically active. You have to first say, what I'm doing has nothing to do with politics. And I am here in front of the prime minister's office with a sign that says, down with Abe, which is, which is a very strong thing to say uh, in Japan, actually, um, with a sign that says, down with Abe. I'm here as a regular person, as just a student. I'm not here as an activist in any kind of way. So the relationship to politics, to the extent that it's a thing, is tangential at best. And when it does become an object of, of scrutiny or possible identification, everybody is running from it uh, as quickly as possible. This actually, though, is one of the reasons why SEALS was so successful in mobilizing a much broader base, not just of youth, the groups like Moms Against War, or uh, what they would call middles or olders, all kinds of different groups saw in SEALS a, a neutral territory that they could align themselves with and still not be tainted by the residue of activist associations as kind of a coda to, to this, one of the issues that kind of internationally that SEALS was really pushing was the Article 9 against the revision blocking Abe's attempts to revise Article 9. Domestically, there was a uh, set of reforms called the State Secrets Act, which made disclosing information about the uh, disaster or about some of the, the political machinations behind the so-called recovery to disclose that, it was possible to actually have that disclosure be criminalized. And so the State Secrets Act was one of the ways that uh, SEALs tried to mobilize some of the anti-nuclear movements into saying the way the government has handled the anti-nuclear movement is evidence of the kinds of manipulation, uh, is evidence of the lack of respect and concern that the government has towards not only the people of Intohoku, but all of the people of Japan. Why would a government ever criminalize the flow of critical speech? And this was uh, the state secrets that was a very important uh, movement as one of their issues. The third issue that they promoted just before they disbanded, which was always the plan. The plan was never that SEALs would be a, a party or the start of a political movement. They wanted just to stimulate the discussion, to be part of the shifts, and then 
walk away and let other people take their place. We can talk about that later if, if you're interested. But um, the last issue they looked at was voter turnout, especially among young people. And the government had uh, passed a reduction in the age of voting eligibility. And SEALs worked very, very hard at the end across all kinds of, of different ideological lines in order to get the vote out, especially among the younger people. And they really mobilized social media to a huge extent. In the end, the 18 and 19-year-olds who just newly got the, the right to vote, despite all of the media attention, not only from SEALs, but in other groups, but also in mass media attention, um, what a great opportunity to participate in the democratic process, blah, 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 blah. This group, 18 and 19, voted in some of the lowest percentages of any demographics. And when they did, oftentimes they were supporting the LDP. So I think that story kind of helps us understand the complexity of the relationship between the, the LDP and youth voters. Yeah, it seems very strange that uh, there definitely seems to be an appetite for a moderate left-wing political group, and yet they decided to dissolve and let someone else pick up the mantle. In your article, you make it seem very difficult for a left-wing group to have a positive image in Japan. We explored the legacy of the Antwerp riots on popular opinion in an early episode with Professor Nick Kapoor. Could you explain what other obstacles remain for moderate left-wing groups seeking to re-engage with the general public, and how Article 9 helps or hinders this goal? I'm not sure how much Article 9 per se is a determinant on the ability of activist groups to form or sustain themselves. Again, this goes back to AMPO, I think. The AMPO groups were institutionalized at different universities. So Waseda had its chapter and Jose had its chapter. And very much like the large-scale labor unions, which were we, we see them at, at every company, at Hitachi and Sony and, and et cetera. But this institutionalization had a couple of different and, and somewhat mixed results. One of them was an ability to sustain itself over time. When you're at a university or at a company, you're able to collect dues, you're able to have some kind of institutional memory, you have a space, you have a list that you pass on from one group to the next. But at the same time, many of those groups became very rigid, very hierarchical, very ideological. And that rigidity, that hierarchy, that ideology, all of those things have really fallen out of favor. That young people today in Japan, I think in a lot of places, when they see any of the kind of social structural uh, hierarchy, for example, very clear requirements for being a member and a certain bunch of, of obligations to fill that those expectations for uh, membership, they, they pull away from that. Um, this is not the kind of groups that they seek to be part of. At the same time, they've also become hugely suspicious of any ideological formations. Ideology of whatever stripe is something that I think a lot of young people, again, pull away from. One of the things we argue in, in the article is we've seen a shift from groups with members into events and networks. 
So the practice of being a member of a group is very different from uh, somebody who is part of a network. An open-ended with a very little obligation. The social media has allowed a huge diffusion of, of all kinds of very effective flows of information, but not a lot of buy-in necessarily. It's not something that demands a lot of somebody to be following somebody on Twitter or something like that. Actually, I think the difficulty is in sustainability. It's much harder to uh, sustain a group when you are deinstitutionalized, and it's really not a group at all. It's it's more like a, a network that is relatively open-ended and asks very little of you, and as a result, gets relatively little from you. The other thing that I think is is important to note is that when young people in Japan start working, those first five or six years are hugely, hugely demanding. Almost all of my students, either uh, students who have graduated from high school or the students who have graduated from college, the amount that is asked of these young workers at the company is just enormous. And the possibility of maintaining political engagement, political activity during that period of time is almost impossible. I don't think this is something that corporate Japan has planned as a way to make sure that it kneecaps the activist movements, but it certainly is probably the most significant reason for people who were at least somewhat active in in college or uh, uh, younger, ending up not being able to continue on, uh, and thus the group itself not really being able to continue on. At the time of writing your article on Seals, the group seems to pit themselves directly against the desire of then-Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's desire to revise the constitution. Now, of course, Abe has retired, and as of last year, Yoshihide Suga has taken the helm. Can we expect the LDP to continue to push for a revision of the constitution, or has this motive lost its momentum now Abe has stepped out of the picture? Oh, I'm, I'm afraid asking an anthropologist to predict the future of party politics in, uh, is, is, is a difficult question. It's a good question. I wish I knew the answer to it. Let me answer another question. What is the consciousness of Article 9 among young people now? Uh, it was during Abe's effort to revise it. It was a pretty important issue among everyday people. It would be showing up in the newspaper, it would be showing up on NHK. There was a certain amount of urgency. Now that Suga is not pushing the same kind of agenda, and I think probably through his own adept political calculation, he doesn't seem anyway so far uh, to be pushing the same kind of agenda yet. But because nobody's pushing it, nobody's thinking about it. It's not an issue in the popular media. It's not an issue in social media. It's not something that young people at all are thinking about one way or another. Uh, and this kind of amnesia or misrecognition of this moment as one that, oh, we're safe, we're secure, it's okay, uh, we've gotten over all that difficult period of uh, Fukushima and all, um, we've had a 10-year anniversary, it doesn't matter. As long as we get through uh, this current COVID period, um, we're probably okay. 
unfortunately, unless you have somebody like Abe actively threatening to take away those protections that are entailed in Article 9, there isn't enough of a activist movement to mobilize and sustain itself outside of any kind of immediate threat, which puts the activist movements um, at, at a real disadvantage. So do you believe that there is now more of a threat that now that, that we have a prime minister who is not actively pursuing this goal of revision happening rather quietly than when Abe was threatening in rather, you know, stern terms to, to revise? Sure. Uh, anytime there is no activist politics going on in a society, in a polity, that uh, society, that polity is at risk. To assume that it's able to uh, reconstitute itself and revigorate and uh, re-engage only when there's a need, only when there's a threat, is a dangerous assumption because oftentimes a government that's run by somebody as smart as Suga if I were Suga, I'd look out over the, the level of, of activist politics right now, and I'd say, yeah, this is a great time. This is, this is the time to do it. All of these groups are, are not in disarray, but just have kind of drifted away. So yes, I would say especially youth, but also all of the citizens of Japan are in danger to the extent that we don't have a potent and organized activist opposition. Well, uh, on that cheerful note, uh, thank you for answering my questions. And uh, before we finish the episode, could you share with us what other projects we're currently working on? Thank you very much. So we have moved from radiation refugees to actual refugees. Japan has become a destination for tens of thousands of refugee asylum seekers. And yet, Japan is accepting less than 1% of the applicants. So they're recognizing fewer than 1% of the total applications, which is, is so out of proportion to any of the European or American numbers that it's kind of upsetting, disturbing thing. Uh, Japan pays a huge amount of money to refugee support, in Africa or in the Middle East, whereas many people say that this is the kind of blood money that they pay to keep the Africans, to keep the Middle Easterners from coming into Japan. So we do a lot of uh, support with these populations. Uh, we're also doing our uh, oral narrative to try to tell the story because demographics suggest that in the next 10, maybe 15 years, Either Japan is going to accept a huge influx of immigrants or it's going to cease to exist. So Japan is not at a crossroads of are they going to uh, have to accept? It's pretty clear that they're going to have to accept. And the only question is under what conditions? And do we know enough about these migrant populations to support them and have them play a role in whatever Japan becomes uh, as it moves forward. So that's what we're doing. Well, we'll definitely have to have you back on the show to discuss that research too. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. 
You can find the link to David's research profile in the description below. Next week we'll be joined by Dr. Nao Noli Kodate, Associate Professor in Social Policy and Director of Research at University College Dublin. He will introduce us to the growing phenomenon of, of robotics in elder care. In super-aged Japan, robotics are becoming more and more common in assisting care staff in a wide range of activities, from heavy lifting to night nursing, as the human workforce decreases due to, de due to depopulation and strict migration policies. Now's research indicates robots can be more than just tools, providing social contacts for, for a demographic commonly afflicted by, lon by loneliness. What's more, as other nations begin to see aging populations, robots in the care home may soon become the norm globally. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening.